Our scripture reading before the sermon will come from the book of Numbers, chapter 31. Hear the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian, as the Lord commanded Moses, and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Baor, with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took them as plunder, all their cattle, their flocks, and their goods, all their cities and the places where they lived, and all their encampments they burned with fire, and took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of man and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves and camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair, and every article of wood. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men in the army who had gone to battle, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded Moses. You must wash your clothes on the seventh day, and you shall be clean. And afterward you may come into the camp. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Grant us so to be joined together in unity of spirit by their teaching, that we may be made a holy temple acceptable to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, I count it a privilege each week to be with you on the Lord's Day and encourage you at this time to go to the book of Revelation chapter 2 and we will find our sermon text there for this evening. 
We're looking at the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches in Asia. And these are the letters that Jesus sent to the church. And we're calling this little mini-series... We're calling this little mini-series Seven Letters to the One Holy, Chaotic, and Apathetic Church. Uh, Keep in mind that it is holy, but as you look at these seven churches, you see a lot of chaos, a lot of apathy, and a lot of other problems as well. As I said to you last week, when we look at these letters, we should keep in mind that these letters were written to specific congregations of Christ's people, but there might be application for us. And so as we look through this and hear what Christ has to say to the church in Pergamum, let us pay attention to what he has to say and see if perhaps he is speaking some of these words to us as well. Our sermon text will be in Revelation 2, 12 to 17. And I'm going to read this letter in its entirety, all five verses of it. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And that is the word of the Lord. And may God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, Amen. Amen. So we're three letters in now, and again, I remind you that each of these letters follow the same kind of structure. Jesus commends the church, Jesus confronts the church, Jesus counsels the church, and Jesus comforts the church. Every letter begins also with Jesus calling the church to consider once again who he is. Jesus reveals himself in different ways to different congregations of his people. And all of these revelations serve a purpose. In this particular letter, Jesus reveals himself as the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Remember back when Jesus revealed himself to John on the island of Patmos on the Lord's Day? John is caught up in the Spirit. He hears a voice behind him speaking. And when he turns to see the voice, he sees... Jesus standing there, and part of that vision of Jesus Christ, that glorious and majestic vision of Jesus, is that Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This is the Word of God that Jesus speaks. It's the Word of God that Jesus speaks. And he reveals himself to the church at Pergamum as the one who has the two-edged sword because he wants to remind the church of the truth and grace of the Word of God. 
The problem at, Caper at Pergamum is that some in the church, not all, but some in the church, have started flirting with false teachings. They started listening to false teachers. They're reading the wrong kinds of books. They're going to the wrong kinds of conferences or what have you. Uh, they've got their own kind of podcast going on on the side. And these things are beginning to affect the life of the church. The integrity, the doctrinal integrity of the church is at stake. And so Jesus comes to the church, calls the church to consider that He is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He is the one who has this Word of God for them. This imagery of the Word of God as a double-edged sword appears in the book of Hebrews, for example, in verses 12 and 13, where God's Word says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him, to whom we must give account. Jesus comes to his church at Pergamum as the one who is wielding this sharp, double-edged sword. Now, anytime in Scripture you see someone with a sword, you know that some kind of conflict or some kind of battle or war is about to take place. This is the same imagery that Joshua saw, for example, when he was going into the promised land and appeared before him the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn. And Joshua wants to know, are you for us or for our enemies? And the answer was, neither. Joshua is trying to recruit the angel of the Lord into his army and the angel of the Lord turns the tables and says, you're in my army. Joshua bows before him, bows to the ground, because he knows that the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, with the sword drawn, is mightier and greater than he was. Here we see Jesus, the angel of the Lord, as it were, with his sword drawn, standing before the church calling the church to repentance, commending the church on one hand, but confronting the church on the other. And so we see this Word of God standing before us in this letter. Notice how Jesus commends the church. In verse 13, He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith. Not even when some of our brothers were being persecuted or killed among you. He highlights the fact that this church is situated in a place that is known as Satan's throne. It's a place where Satan dwells. There's a lot of discussion over what that may or may not mean, but I take it to mean something like this, that they are living in a place, they're in a city and in a region where there seems to be a strong uh, influence of evil. There seem to be many false religions and pagan cults and evil seems to have taken a foothold in this area. But rather than flee the area, rather than abandon the city to evil, you have in the midst of it the church of Jesus Christ, a point of light, an outpost of the gospel, a mission planted in the middle of this city. 
And although it's surrounded by evil and there's much pressure coming against them from the culture, this church, for the most part, is holding fast to Jesus' name, not denying the faith. This is a description of the vast majority of the congregation of the church in Pergamum. And Jesus commends the church for that because they're in a hard place and it's difficult to work there. Maybe conversions come slowly. Maybe the church isn't growing very much. It's difficult here. They feel the effects of spiritual warfare on a daily basis. They know what's at stake. So this is a church, if you can imagine, a church where daily the members are dressing themselves in the armor of God going out to do battle with the forces of evil around them. If you live in a place, if you lived in a place that was known as Satan's throne and a, in Satan's house and where Satan dwells, you might be a little weirded out, right? And yet Jesus comes to commend this church because they are putting up resistance, marking the antithesis between Christ and the world and between the gospel and false religions. And so there is much to commend this church for doing and doing well and doing right. And Jesus, as a good shepherd, does this. He commends the church. I know where you dwell. I see what's going on all around you. And even when there is trouble in your midst, even when some of your members, maybe faithful witness refers to a former pastor or minister they had, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, you did not deny my faith. I wonder about some of our brothers throughout the world who experience this kind of thing on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. I wonder how they maintain their faith in Christ even in the face of that incredible pressure and the temptation to run away or to privatize the faith. I wonder what kind of faith it would take to hold fast to Jesus and not deny the faith in the face of that kind of persecution, in, that kind, in the face of that kind of struggle. What would it be like if we were suddenly in a place where Satan dwells and, and where he has his temple, he has his central location, and people are out to get us? What would it be like if your minister were killed for the faith? How would you respond? What would you do? We would find a thousand and one reasons to not assemble together, to not gather together. And they might be good, they might be bad, who knows? But even under this kind of pressure, the church is commended because they are still fighting the good fight of the faith. So Jesus commends them for that. And if that were the end of the letter, we'd say, what a great congregation. That's the place to be. And yet Jesus has to point out that even in this church, with all, of, all the good that it's doing, the fighting the good fight of the faith, the spiritual warfare, all of those things, Jesus has to come to the church and say, look, I still have something against you. And this is where he confronts the church. I want you to notice something here. He confronts the church not because of what's happening outside the church. He confronts the church because of what they are allowing to happen inside the church. I have a few things against you. Pay very close attention to what he says. I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And then later he says, and you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. 
Okay? So you see how this works? The entire congregation gets a letter commending the entire congregation for holding fast and not denying the faith and for engaging in spiritual warfare. But then the entire congregation gets reprimanded because some in the congregation are doing the wrong thing. Jesus is holding the entire community responsible for what a few people in the community are doing. And what are these people doing that's so bad that Jesus confronts the church in verses 14 and 15? Some are holding to the teaching of Balaam. Now it's not like Balaam had a systematic theology out there or that he had a bestseller in a bookstore and they just went and bought it and started reading it. Balaam has been dead a long time. So this is symbolic language. The point is that they are holding on to the teaching of someone who resembles Balaam. They are teaching the same kinds of things that Balaam did. They are listening to false prophets. False prophets who are in some way undermining the authority of God's Word in the life of the church. They are listening to teachers who are contradicting the gospel. They are listening to people and buying into doctrines that are combating and fighting against the doctrine of the apostles. The illustration used here is they're holding to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Somebody in Pergamum, in the church at Pergamum, thought it would be a good idea to take a false teacher from outside the church, perhaps in that area where Satan dwells and he has his temple, to take some of that teaching and bring it into the church. And whatever that teaching was, whatever the specific doctrine of it was, here's what it encouraged people to do. It encouraged people to engage in some form of idolatry, to experience the dynamics of idolatry, which included not only eating food, which would have been forbidden, maybe food that still had blood in it, but also to practice sexual immorality. Now at this point it would be very easy for us to say, whoa, that, we don't have anyone doing that. I mean, we don't practice idolatry and we don't have any teaching that encourages sexual immorality. And so you might feel like you're off the hook here. But let me frame this for you by reminding you of the story of Balaam. Here in this letter, Jesus refers to the story of Balaam. It's found in the book of Numbers. It spans a few chapters, and I'm going to narrow it down for you in just a few sentences and give you the essence of it, okay? Uh, here's how we might describe Balaam. If you want to understand who Balaam was, just think of Balaam as the, uh, he was like a proto-televangelist. He was like the first televangelist that appears on the scene in, in the world. He's a prophet for hire, which means that he's going to tell whoever hires him whatever they want to hear. So someone hires him, they're like, you're a prophet from God, you speak for the gods, here's some money, tell me and my troops, tell me and my people what God has to say, wink, wink, you understand? And Balaam's like, got you, what do you need to hear? And so he would tell people whatever they wanted to hear, except in the case of dealing with Israel. 
you read the story, it's kind of strange because it seems that even though Balaam is a false prophet, everything he says about Israel is right and good and he keeps blessing them. God is speaking through this false prophet to undo the enemies of Israel. And so when you first read the story of Balaam, you think, well, he couldn't be that bad. I mean, if you're, listening, if you're holding to the teaching of Balaam, didn't he bless Israel? Yeah, but there's a backstory that you find out later. And what you find out is that on the sly, Balaam is telling the enemies of God, look, if you want to undo Israel, here's what you need to do. You need to get your women, get the prettiest, sexiest of your women to go out and seduce the young men of Israel and get them to engage with them in relations and to practice their religion with them and celebrate their holidays with them. And once you get them to do that you will weaken the people. You will bring them down. And so that's what happened. The men of Israel were seduced by the women of Moab and Midian and God brought a plague on the community. And as a result of that plague 24,000 people died. Peter, in telling this story in 2 Peter 2, says, in describing false teachers and linking them to Balaam, says that false teachers have eyes full of adultery. They are insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They are an accursed children. They forsake the right way and they go astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain, who loved gain from wrongdoing. So on the sly, Balaam is acting in a way to undo the people of God. In Numbers 25, we learn that 24,000 people died because the enemies of Israel followed the counsel of Baal and brought a curse or a plague upon Israel, upon the people of God. In Pergamum, you have people who are following the teaching of Balaam. What are they doing? They're listening to teachers who are encouraging them to worship other gods besides the Lord Jesus Christ, who are encouraging them to follow the passions of their hearts and to uh, obey their thirsts. And so you've got people who are tired of hearing about God's moral code and tired of hearing about the sexual ethics of the gospel. They've now found this new ethic out there that allows them to do whatever they want and practice sexual uh, immorality in any way they please. And this is happening inside the church at Capernaum. Not with everyone, but with some. And Jesus says, look, some of you are doing this and we're not going to stand for it. You've got other people who are holding, for, uh, holding on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, but if you take the word Nicolaitan, what it means, it's the, um, the, the victor of the people or the conqueror of the people. Uh, we might describe it as a kind of power religion. These people are all about power and domination and getting control. You have this man-centered power religion which is beginning to take a foothold among the church at Pergamum. And so Jesus says, look, I know not everyone's doing that, but some of you are, and enough are doing it that we've got to come and point it out, confront the church and deal with this problem before it becomes a grave problem that affects the entire congregation of the people. 
I don't want to go into much detail about this right now, but I do want to point out that there are movements movements among the Christian community that very much resemble the things that Balaam and the Nicolaitans were teaching. I'll give you just one example. A couple of years ago, there was a movement started by a former PCA pastor down in Florida. I'll spare you his name. But he, started, he was the leader of a movement or a, a ministry, he called it, called Liberate. And it was all about grace and freedom. It was about liberation from, uh, from, uh, from guilt and from restrictions and boundaries. And he would preach a gospel of grace. He started out preaching the gospel of grace. And then little by little, he started preaching against the law of God and against the commandments of God. And so that he was preaching a grace without limitations, a grace without restrictions. He was preaching a what he called a free grace, which turned out to be no grace at all. It was a false grace that did not require anyone to repent. It didn't require people to pursue sanctification or obedience. No imperatives, no commands, no obligations were laid on people who sat under that teaching. It was a false grace that did not require that pastor to turn away from his own sin and trust Christ. And even though many people counseled him to repent of this heretical teaching, he insisted until it all finally came to light that the grace that he was preaching, the false grace that he was preaching, was a grace that gave him the freedom to sin against his wife with other women, to sin against his congregation, to sin against his ministry partners, to sin against his denomination, to sin against the Lord Jesus Christ. I say he was a former PCA pastor. He was a PCA pastor when those things were happening. Former now because of disciplinary actions that were brought, but too little too late because of his stubborn refusal to let go of the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You see how practical this can be. Now, like the church at Pergamum, we are surrounded by false teachers who urge us to accommodate the teachings of the apostles to please the world and to adjust our theology and practices to suit whatever situation arises to avoid the hard truths of the Scriptures, to avoid offending anyone, or to abandon orthodoxy altogether just for something more pragmatic that yields quicker and easier, perhaps better results. This is the pressure we face. I can only imagine how much greater the pressure was for those people in Pergamum who lived where Satan's throne was and where Satan dwelled. But we're feeling that encroachment upon us, aren't we? Orthodoxy is not as popular as it used to be. Everyone's sensitive. No one likes to get their feelings hurt. Everything seems uncharitable and difficult to hear and offensive. And just imagine how these letters would fare, these letters of Jesus Christ to the churches then, how they would be heard now in many of our congregations. Jesus doesn't hold back. He comes to us with a two-edged sword and says, I commend you for some things. I'm going to confront you with others. And here's the counsel. 
Here's the counsel. Verse 16. Repent. One word. That's his counsel to this church. Repent. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And that should give us a little bit of relief. He's going to come to the congregation, come to the whole church, and yet he will war against those within the community who are holding on to these false gospels, false grace, false teaching. He will war against those people. Now, we don't like to think of Jesus in these terms. We like to think of Jesus as the guy that pretty much lets us do anything we want. The big brother that winks at all of our weakness and failing, who says, I'm not going to tell Dad on you. You're going to be okay with me. But that's not the Jesus revealed in the Scriptures, is it? The one revealed in the Scriptures takes seriously both the grace and the truth of the Gospel. He takes seriously both justification by faith and sanctification by that same faith. He is concerned about the congregations of His people growing up into His image. And the one way, uh, at least one of the ways we do that, is by taking seriously the teachings of the apostles and prophets revealed to us in the Word of God. Repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Interesting thing about that phrase, the sword, come against them with the sword. Go back to the story of Balaam for just a moment. Let me tie some things together for you here. When God's people followed the counsel of, of Balaam, a plague broke out and 24,000 people died by the plague. All the leaders of the people were lifted up on poles and left out to dry in the sun. That's quite an image for you. A priest follows one couple into a tent, catches them in the act of copulation, and pierces them with a spear through their bellies, one spear, one shot, pins them to the ground. And for that he is praised as a righteous man of God. What does that have to do with the sword? In Numbers 31, we learn that Balaam, the false prophet, was killed with the sword. What is Jesus telling the church at Pergamum? Jesus is telling the church at Pergamum that those who follow the teaching of Balaam will suffer the fate of Balaam. They will not be killed with the sword of steel, but they will be killed with the sword of the Spirit. This is a form of judgment. So Jesus is warning the church that if she doesn't turn away from her doctrinal errors, her theological gluttony, her spiritual adultery, He will come and cut them down with the sword of His mouth, which is the Word of God, just as Balaam was cut down by the sword of John Murray says this, a word that we need to hear again and again. John Murray, former professor at Westminster, though I should say the late John Murray, says, The difference between truth and error is not a chasm, but a razor's edge. This calls for discernment as we listen to the various voices and teachers and resources and literatures and podcasts and blogs and all those things that are out there. We must be very careful to weigh these things by the Word of God, to see them in light of the Word of God. 
doctrinal precision and moral purity seem passe, seem old school, out of date for many people in our culture and even for many people within our churches. But as this letter makes it clear to us, they are crucial aspects of the Christian life. So I want to urge you, you maybe you're not the kind of person who likes doctrine and theology very much. Maybe you prefer stories. Okay, read the Bible, full of both, right? Full of stories, also full of doctrine, full of theology. Maybe you're not the kind of person who takes morality seriously. Maybe you found yourself being lax in your moral life. But let me remind you that Jesus Christ the Lord stands before us with a double-edged sword in His hand. This is the Word of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And that sword will be used to cut, to dissect, to discern, to find out the truth of each person. So I want to encourage you to take these things far more seriously than you might at this time. Treat them as if your life depended on them because your life does depend on them. If not, you will find yourself on the road to destruction with false teachers who are in jeopardy of losing their lives as well. It may not seem like it now, but this is a life or death matter. We're called to follow the truth unto life or to follow falsehood unto heresy and unto death. And so the way is set before us. Life and death is set before us very clearly in the Word of God. And as you know, Jesus declares Himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so no gospel detached from Jesus can be the gospel, but only the gospel that reveals to us the person and work of Jesus is the true gospel. Well, let me end with this word of comfort from Jesus to the church in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the reason we keep saying that this is a word of comfort for the, to the churches is because the Spirit is the comforter sent by Christ to comfort us and counsel us according to the Word of God. And He counsels us and comforts us by pointing us back to Jesus again and again. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. <clears throat> Two quick things here about manna and about the white stone. Think about the manna. What is manna? Manna is a gift of grace from God to His people. And this stands in sharp contrast to the food sacrificed to idols. Manna is a gift from God for His people. Idolatry is all about you working and you making sacrifices and you trying to make the gods happy in order to keep the gods satisfied so that the gods will leave you alone. That's what idolatry is all about. That's Balaam's teaching. What is manna? What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is all about God who worked to make the once-for-all sacrifice for you. The God who worked to feed you in order to keep you satisfied in the person and work of His Son, Jesus. Do you see the difference between the gospel and idolatry? Idolatry is all about men working to please God and keep God's 
the God off their backs, but the gospel is all about God working by His grace and mercy and love to take care of His people. Jesus says to the one who overcomes these false teachers, to the one who overcomes the influences of a satanic culture, to the one who overcomes these things, I will give the hidden manna, the secret manna, the manna that feeds your soul as a gift of grace. And what about this white stone? Why is it so important? In the Roman world, the white stone was something that was often given to victors at sporting events. They would win and they would receive a white stone and they could use that white stone as a kind of pass around the city, a VIP card. I'm a victor. I won. I'm a champion. Here's my card. It was also given to people who were hungry. It was given to the poor so that they could get a daily supply of grain. They could go, it was like the food stamp of the day. Here's my card, I'm hungry, I need food. And they would be given food. Also, we learned that the white stone was given to people as a token or a pass for admission to a banquet. You'd be invited to a banquet, you needed a way to prove that you were invited, how can you get in? And you flash your white stone. Do you see how all of this relates to the person and work of Christ and the life of His church? To the one who overcomes false teaching, false teachers, the influences of a satanic culture, Jesus promises to give you a stone with your name on it. A stone that says you have a right to be here. You have overcome. You were poor, but you will have plenty to eat. You have access to the Lord's table. You belong in this place. To the one who overcomes, Jesus will give these gifts of grace. And so I encourage you to fight the good fight of the faith and to overcome the world in this way by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Let us pray together. God, have mercy on us according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions, wash us thoroughly from our iniquities, and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions, and that our sin is ever before us. Against you, you only, have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, we were brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did our mothers conceive us. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach us wisdom in the secret heart. Purge us with hyssop, and we shall be clean. Wash us, and we shall be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from our sins, and blot out all our iniquities. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence, and take, take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation, and uphold us with a willing spirit. O Lord, open our lips, and our mouths will declare your praises. 
You will not delight in sacrifices, or we would give them. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Oh God, I pray that as we seek to apply the gospel in our lives and as we seek to defend against false teaching and discern what is true and good, what is wrong and false, that your Spirit will illumine our hearts and minds and help us to make these right judgments for your glory and for our good. We pray these things. Amen.